Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from MDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Hey everyone, welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. This is Jen, Melissa, and Bridger. Hello. Back together again. In the same room. If you had just paused after this is Jen, it almost sounded like you were introducing yourself. <laughs> this is Jen. I mean, who am I? Here, here we are. We all so are back together. We're here yeah. in, the in the same, same room, room. Which we haven't met in a while. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. It's been a while. If you ask Jen, it's probably been like three years. Yeah, <laughs> when did we start this? It feels that way. <laughs> Time doesn't matter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are back together again uh, to jump into chapter six of Francine's Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy. Manual. Manual. Basic yes. principles and protocols and procedures. Oh. Third edition. Third edition. Third edition. <laughs> Case here. Or whatever edition you have. True. Although there might be slight variations if you have a different edition. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So today we're going to be talking about desensitization. This chapter covers uh, phases four through seven, mm-hmm. which is quite a bit of mm-hmm, work to do. Mm-hmm. So we're going to break it up uh, a little bit and just focus on desensitization. Phase four. Phase four. Where all the action happens. That's right. It begins. Last week, Jen and I spoke to the conclusion of chapter five in cleaning up assessment and the way we left it was, once you're done with assessment, you're ready. Right into phase four. Phase four. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't wait. Don't wait. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was a question. I had a CIT say that two or three of her consultees have said they've been trained to like do assessment separately. Like They'll almost do a whole session just in assessment. So I ran into that heard of as that. well. So I... I have a thought about that, and of course I'm curious what you guys think, but I do think that there's clients that benefit from sort of telling a high-level story about the target to kind of clear out that compulsive urge to overshare (laughs) while Mm -hmm. processing. And so, but I I don't like to do it with the assessment questions necessarily. I think I just ask them, like, tell me the story of the target if I have a sense that they need to, but... um, I don't, I don't like to do the actual worksheet until we're about to head in. It's too activating. Yeah. 
as a group, what we kind of landed on is maybe that in the case of a float back, maybe there's misunderstanding and like you do assess a present day situation Mm -hmm. in order to activate for a float back. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also sometimes the trainings are broken up in a way where you're doing assessment, Uh, you're breaking and you're going into the next day and then learning. Mm -hmm. So it can kind of feel like, so maybe maybe there's some confusion that that's how we practice, but to get into this, chapter like even though it's a completely different chapter mm-hmm. still we're looking at In time the, we're, right yeah. the purpose of phase three is to assess and activate mm-hmm. and so we will assess the material to activate the neural network to then move into desensitization mm-hmm. yeah i was thinking to your original question that in the interpretation of the way it's described in the book i don't think it's necessarily odd to pause after the assessment because the way even in this first chapter the way it flows in a linear way is that you do the assessment once you've got the assessment now you're like in this text describing how emdr works again you're saying this is remember this is your brain doing the work Mm -hmm. this is we all want to we want to process what's coming up for you so anything that you notice be sure to share that like there's Mm -hmm. explicit quotes in here that even before you hit go on desensitization, you are kind of rehashing things. Whereas I feel like the way we practice it, it's, it's almost like that's front loaded. Mm -hmm. Then we do the assessment. Then we launch into desensitization. Well, on page 137, like she, she kind of talks about that, that you might want to redo a little bit of that prep conversation, but at the very bottom of 137, her sentence is immediately after the material is assessed, the clinician initiates the sets of stimulation. Right. I interpret immediately as immediately. Right now, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. The, like this next second is that's right. what we're doing. Um, but I'm not sure that it's always trained that exact way. Yeah, and I that's think, what I meant by like the interpretation right. of how it's flowing narratively. It does like pause and interject or remind, but I think when we're talking about yeah, yeah. doing it in a session... And for me, <laughs> it, it does best when we've got the al- aliveness of the mm-hmm. target material in the body from the assessment as mm-hmm. we've intentionally uh, assessed to activate, like we yeah. used that language mm-hmm. last time. Mm-hmm. Where, and I think if for your client it does feel appropriate, like maybe assessment ends up taking a lot longer than it's intended to. We talk about it taking like five minutes to get through as an activation but maybe it ends up opening up brilliant conversation mm-hmm. and we end up recognizing that they don't know how to identify sensation in their body. Like yeah. if in that scenario, it's not used to immediately go into desensitization, be aware of what is activated by the assessment questions mm-hmm. and tend to that. And then when you do start desensitization, reactivate, which that right. is in the script yeah. to say, now as you bring up that target, yep the image that represents the worst part and you go through the negative cognition the emotion and the body sensation we're bringing up the most activating pieces Mm -hmm. and then we immediately start so i think for me anytime it's less about is there a right and a wrong way to do it and it's about in each scenario what do we need to be aware of right like if we are going to separate them tend to activation and reactivate Mm -hmm. before Mm -hmm. phase four Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it probably depends a lot on where we are in the overall um, scope of their treatment. That early on, when they're first kind of getting to know the EMDR process, we might have more of that of 
assessment takes a little bit longer. We're still kind of trying to understand the themes of what we're working with. But as it progresses, it's more likely that we're going to be able to move through assessment pretty quickly yeah. and go straight in. Yeah. So just to kind of name experientially what this probably feels like is when you're new, which means all of your clients are new at it, <laughs> unless they've <laughs> yeah. done it with somebody else previously, assessment is going to take a little bit longer. At this point, I would say, truthfully, assessment takes one minute for me most of the time. Mm-hmm. Like it's pretty speedy uh, and that's intentional. Yeah. But that's because... I've been with all my clients like three years or more. Yeah. And so like, that's familiar. just, a, yeah, it's a different world. Yeah. And I do think that to the point of the newness of practicing mm-hmm. this with uh, a client, like you're new as a practitioner or the client is new, the way memories can emerge that are seemingly unrelated, quote mm-hmm. unquote, to the target material can be um, surprising and dysregulating. Mm-hmm. And Francine speaks to this. Um, explicitly that when we're talking about something that happened in the present and an old memory comes up culturally mm-hmm. we might bracket that out as like that was weird that that mm-hmm. came up but that's really what we're after with the natural mechanisms of of emdr and what creates the change but even just making space to have that conversation mm-hmm. with your client that mm-hmm. when you notice things come up don't feel like you have to push them away Um, unless of course you're doing some type of restricted processing or, Mm. you know, you're having a container type of experience, but that that's really the body doing its natural thing of showing you the origin of the distress, Mm -hmm. even if it might be in their temporal mind. No, this is the car wreck that I had two months ago. Right. And that other thing that happened when I was five. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know why it's coming up. Sorry, it's getting in the way. Like How how annoying. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that historically that probably happened a lot more. And then this is a thought that I'm having for the first time, which is always fun, which is I think that doesn't happen as much anymore since we've started using SIP. Because so much of our prep work is in conceptualization. So the the client, yeah, Yeah. So the client is totally familiar with that idea of, you know, everything that we're experiencing in the present is associated with the past. And we've already kind of relationally made those connections and mapped out the the themes of their attachment so when those things come come up in emdr it's pretty rare that it's the first time that connection has been talked about that makes a lot of sense yeah Mm -hmm. yeah the way your style for history taking Mm -hmm. your style for case conceptualization will influence so much of what's what's feeling surprising during the pre-processing. Yeah. yeah. If it's like, hi, nice to meet you, hold these buzzers. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty intense. <laughs> pretty direct. All kinds yeah. of stuff could come up and yeah. be shocking. But the, the truth is, is like, that was the experience that made me a believer in EMDR. It was Thrilled like feeling, it. Yeah, yeah, I was feeling that like, oh my God. Look at what this uncovers. Yeah. yeah. But I was also a therapist at the time, which meant that I had a vague notion that the history of my life was relevant to the present and was interested. Loved in the access yes. it provided. Yes, that felt exciting rather yeah. than overwhelming. Yeah. I do like, Jen, when you talked about reactivating or repriming to jump back in, mm-hmm. even if you do have to do some, some re-explanation, I like that. Francine's language here metaphorically when you talk about <laughs> I picked up on the same the, thing I'm like oh my god Francine <laughs> and she says bring up the picture in the words and the of the negative cognition and notice where you feel it in your body it says metaphorically this is the equivalent of directing three laser beams at the dysfunctionally stored material three laser beam three one laser beams. is the picture yep. laser beam two is the words ah. and laser beam three is the feeling in your body mm-hmm. I don't what about the emotion 
Where's that one? Irrelevant, apparently. It's just to me, the three laser beams would be the words, the emotion, and the body. Yeah. Or the, or the image. I mean, I think it's like five laser beams. Yeah. But maybe she got a little squishy with the metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> or there's some bias going into what is the most important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just pondering the question. Where is emotion? I don't know. That's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that the next sentence, this is on page 137 still, is this is done referring to the laser beams to establish the initial link to the dysfunctional memory. Um, and as soon as we begin, then something new is going to happen and we let go of, you know, those initial things. I've had a lot of discussion lately, and I'm curious, you know, how you guys talk to people about this. Um, but that idea of going back to target, you know, the, mm-hmm. the notion of a reboot question and how do we do that which she talks about later in this chapter how do we do that without going back to those initial elements like how do we actually reactivate the memory as it is now rather than um what it was before Mm -hmm. and kind of the the subtlety of that moment um and i have very specific language which reading through this i realize like i've been saying the same phrase since my basic training because it works and it's, you know, it's Francine's language, but I'm curious, like, how do you guys, what is it? Uh, okay, hold on. I'm going to, I'm going yeah, to it, right? be there. <laughs> right. So when you go back to that original incident, what comes up now? What comes mm-hmm. up? Yeah. Like that's what I say over and over again. Or when you bring up that original incident and when I was reading, it's the original incident. Yeah. Right? She doesn't, it's say not memory. picture. It's not, it's not sound. Picture. It's yeah. Not, yeah. We're not, you know, alluding to any specific piece of it because yeah. we don't know how it's going to be stored. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the iterations of that are original experience, mm-hmm. incident, target memory, moment. Yeah. Moments. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I have some feelings around like this the caution and the sensitivity of like, but don't say the image. Don't ever say the negative cognition mm-hmm. ever again. <laughs> don't go back to the original emotion or sensation. And I think theoretically it makes sense, right? right. We are, have moved on from that point. As soon as we're it's now something else, yeah. But the sensitivity around it is, for me, if, if we're really authentically reprocessing, to have something like a phrase like "I'm not good enough" said mm-hmm. again mm-hmm. should register in the body as like, yeah. That's what I did feel. Yeah. That's what I did feel, but it doesn't resonate anymore. Yeah. Not like, oh no, you said it. Now I'm suddenly I feel it again. again. <laughs> yes, Maybe it's true forever. <laughs> yes. And so yeah. I think, and I still with, you know, consultees will say like, we don't go back to the original memory or the original uh, image or cognition. Right. But I also think like we should be able to like attempt to reactivate it in multiple different ways. Mm-hmm. And it not to become activated for it to be really processed. I agree. I think the only other like piece of the puzzle that matters there is that if we're working in a big network and we're trying to just do this piece of it, Mm. what I have seen is that when that phrase is used again, the brain, you know, the the body jumps to the next thing. It's like, oh, let's know. Yeah, it's no longer relevant in this moment. But there is another one. Yeah. And maybe it's time to move on to that one. So I think it's more that it will activate something new mm-hmm. potentially. Because um, I agree. I don't think like the fear feeling around, oh, you could make it bad again. Mm-hmm. You yeah. could make it distressing again. Um, that doesn't feel real at all. Yeah. 
For me, well, there's two parts. There's the answer to your original question, but then more of what came up listening to the two of you is that for me, I have a pretty open invitation to the target expanding. And I see that as the point. Mm -hmm. Like I don't, if they start to wonder, there's really, I I mean, outside of the 1% for statistical, like whatever, Mm -hmm. maybe, but rarely, if ever, will I say, let's leave that for now and come back to target or try and reboot the original target to get to some sense of conclusion with that. For me, the float backs or the associations are the point. I think that one of the things that I learned almost immediately as I started doing EMGR is that the touch points that stand out as the target memory are just the way in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not really the full representation of why that distress or cognition or, or strategy sure. exists. They're just that person's best guess or mm-hmm. most immediate representation of where that comes from. So the associations are almost the point to mm-hmm. me. As one comes up, great, let's keep going, check the time, do we have enough to keep exploring? For me, I so to answer the original question of the reboot, I like the reboot to, like if we're stuck, um, or if we're in a in a space where nothing is shifting, that's a strategy to me as I experience it. It's not something broken with the process or anything I'm doing necessarily. So the strategy is coming up for a reason. Does it seem to stay if we go back to target? Um, when you bring up that original memory, what comes up now? I'm trying to see if there if there is still that sensation that was originally there in the assessment, or has the strategy now? metastasized to even numb out the original distress that was present in the mm-hmm. assessment. If that's the case, then I, I tend to kind of pull out a bit and see if there's any awareness in the client of, is it interesting to you that upon initial assessment, the distress was high or there was stuff emerging naturally and that now there seems to be none. Mm. Just to see if they can help me put language to the strategy because I want to eventually target that right the exists, strategy the strategy and see if we can find out when that became uh, a favorite for them and to like translate the language of strategy from sip training into emdr like whatever that block is that's yeah. running it may be like, a blocking belief but it could be much broader than but belief. it could be yeah. we, we conceptualize that as there's there's a purpose to that mm-hmm. block it's not 100%. very random <laughs> placed block but the nervous system has put that block there for a Mm -hmm. reason Mm -hmm. and that what we're trying to explore is why yeah because theoretically that block is involved intimately likely in their presentation as a whole Mm -hmm. that that block coming up is likely at play in their relational challenges or whatever they came to work on and i think all of that like that makes a lot of sense in the way that we do therapy in our context I do think it's different when you're in a clinical context where there's a lot more kind of a solution-focused yeah. situation. Or, or limited time. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah if, if there's limitations. Or even like if the client has only given consent to work on a particular thing. I was talking to somebody this morning that um, the the client only wants to work on a recent event where they were in the, the shooting in the KC um, Super Bowl parade. Um, and they're aware that there might be other stuff, but yeah. there's like not, not the permission. Goal. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're not going to go there. Um, and so in the conversation, we were sort of 
separating out like here's the potential roots like yeah. where the process may start to you know naturally go and you would kind of have to get consent right there yeah. like are we willing to let it go there um or do we want to reboot and go back to that original incident yeah so if you're in a context where for some other reason an external force needs us to be really contained i think we end up doing the reboot a lot more often yeah and in those scenarios for me personally when i know there's a reason why we're going after a certain thing and it's contextually important to keep it about that certain thing yeah i front load with more a, a more robust sense of a container mm-hmm. because i hope that even if we only have six sessions or something like that that while material comes up that was exploited in the original trauma i want to be able to wrap that up for them and yeah keep it from necessarily you know from contaminating our work Mm -hmm. but that when they leave they're not mystified as to why more stuff is coming up like yeah i want them to have a clean container that it lives in right but that they can take it home and put it on their shelf Mm -hmm. and not have to fear it triggering Mm -hmm. something else or if it does trigger something else, we don't want them to be unaware that that's a possibility. Exactly. You know, yes. If you start having dreams about this other thing and your subconscious is like, hello, yeah. <laughs> you you have awoken something. Like, yes. We want that to be. Finally, at, we're looking at yes, this. Yes. Yeah. It's like, but are we really? Wait a second. Right. Um, so I, I think like the, the parameters that uh, we work in around consent that the client is given matter a lot in how often we do that and how much the association is the point. Versus desensitization. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Throughout the the portion on desensitization, there's the um, I'm smiling because we have each had conversations about this, having different feelings about it. But that at the end of each set, uh, <laughs> the clinician says a version <clears throat> of quote Let it go or blank it out and take a deep breath. This refocusing period serves to interrupt the intensity of focus and concentration and gives the client permission to rest, reorient, and prepare to verbalize the new information plateau. Mm-hmm. Theoretically. When does the third edition come out? Because I thought... 2018. Okay. I feel like I learned before... Well, I don't know my timeline. <laughs> you did <laughs> learn the MDR before 2018. Right, but For I sure. Like I, I learned specifically <laughs> that they don't do that anymore. So I'm surprised to hear it in the third edition that it's still there. Well, I don't think Shapiro ever took that back. I think the change was um, when other people got hold of EMDR and started making modifications for yes. complex PTSD. For complex PTSD out. especially. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that just ceases to make any sense, but also can be a problem yeah. rather than an asset. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like there's, you know, I don't use that as a standard rule. I have a, a different iteration of like... The, what I talk a lot about is like we are going to have one foot in the present and one foot in the past and we're going to teeter-totter between the two and sometimes we're going to lean more heavily in the past and sometimes we're going to try to get more oriented more heavily to the present. Mm-hmm. And if it feels like there's a, a feeling like lost in the past, like I may use those types of phrases to kind of reground, mm-hmm. bring back to the present, say more than just what did you notice? Mm-hmm. Like maybe what did you notice and let's orient here and and be stimulated in our present moment a bit more before we go in again. Yeah. And that would be in cases where like 
dissociation is a close by strategy. Like yep. we're, we're into like overactivation, a very sensitive space. I'm going to use phrases more like that, mm-hmm. but that's not like a standard, like let it go, blank it out. It's like, let's, let's come back here and reconnect here. Yeah. I hadn't really made this association, but almost habitually at this point, I do a different phrase on the opposite end of the set. So right before we go into a set, um, rather than saying, notice that, I almost always ask the question, does it feel safe to notice that? Mm -hmm. Now, I think that's like our SIP thing happening where like Mm -hmm. I'm chronically obsessed with safety is (laughs) the main thing that we're doing all the time. Um, And also in somatic work, because we're, you know, up to our eyeballs in deep sensation, I think I just kind of integrated that pattern of does it feel safe to notice that? So the client is constantly checking with themselves around embodied consent to notice and feel what's about to happen. And so it, to me, it makes more sense on the way in rather than recovering on the way out. Um, I don't know that that like needs to be universal. I don't want to advocate it for as a way of being, but I think with a lot of my clients, because of the kind of work that we're up to, that's just what has naturally evolved over time of, does it feel safe to notice that they give consent and then we go in. So Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think for me, it's, it's cool to see just the diversity because for me, <clears throat> I, upon activating a target, almost go like the thought to put language to it is I'm going to go back there with you. Mm-hmm. And when we check in, it's like, we're pausing still back there, but we're mm-hmm. pausing together to mm-hmm. talk about it mm-hmm. and then we'll hit play again and go. Yeah. It's not, I, the only time I talk about past and present is in the closure of a session to say, as we've spent time there, how does it feel to be here now mm-hmm. and to go out into your day? Um, mm-hmm. That's when we're like coming back to the present. But for me, I like to stay there as much as it's tolerable. If I'm noticing a really intense strategy or something like that, that, you know, mm-hmm. I'll pause and we'll come back. But that's like hitting the eject button out that's of so being back there. Yeah. yeah, I think I do the same thing. Like client has eyes closed the whole time. We're basically whispering the whole time. Like we're in it. I don't, we're I don't back think. There. Yeah. yeah, like I don't, I don't actually do the the dual awareness. I don't use the present moment as safety. Right. I something else is happening in order to make sure that safety is established. Um, but I don't think that I'm pulling them into present moment awareness nearly as much. Yeah. Like we go deep and stay deep as long as they feel safe to. And can, yeah, and for me and and can. And can. Like there are clients that don't like it. <laughs> so they'll yeah. they'll almost like catapult themselves back. <laughs> they to the will. Present. They'll open their eyes. And then they'll I'll give have some to kind of, kind of reactivate. Yeah. And that's mm-hmm. another moment of you bring up that target again. Let's go back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm picturing those like that glossed over yeah. stare mm-hmm. that like you can feel your body is here, but you are so far mm-hmm. away. Um, like yeah. even like mid processing where it's like everything stops, mm-hmm. like their yeah. eyes are closed. So you can't see their gaze, but there's like, they're yeah. frozen. It's like they're, they're holding their breath. And yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. And it's like, Oh, I can feel you drifting. Like uh-huh. even if, and for me, I'll talk during processing even yeah. like, I'm right here mm-hmm. with you. Mm-hmm. Just notice my voice while you notice that, like mm-hmm. an attempt to like stay with in that way. Mm-hmm. That it's like it can hmm. when the when the feeling is that there's distance. Yeah. It's not that we're yeah. in it together. That's it's a really you just went there alone. Yeah. 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 
So I've been experimenting, and I'm curious what you guys think about this. I've been experimenting with using language with clients and students to try to describe that feeling. And the language I've been using is if it feels like there's no adult energy in the room, then we maybe have gone too far because they don't have access to any internal resourcing in that space other than us. Mm-hmm. Um, but like that, that consent giving of asking, does it feel safe to notice that even if they say yes, but the way that they say yes feels like a three-year-old saying yes to an authority figure that's mad at them. Yeah. I'm still not going to proceed. Yeah. And, and it's so obvious sometimes like the, the body shifts into childlike posture, the yeah. voice changes. I had this happen to, to a student recently in class and when she did come out of it, she was like startled to discover herself in an adult space. Um, and we ended up talking about her mortgage to try to bring, <laughs> bring some adult energy adult, back adult, in the room, adult, right? Yeah. Like, you know, what's a, you know, I saw that she had a wedding ring on. I'm like, tell me about your spouse, please. Um, and so I do think like that feeling of them being very far away or feeling very childlike, like their adult self has disappeared. All of those are indications that maybe we really do need to come out and, and like feel mm-hmm. the present moment. Yeah. yeah. I wouldn't have known it outside of hearing you both share about yours, but I have a, a reality check mm-hmm. that I do. And I learned it working with, with kids. Um, with ADHD, one of the ways I like to kind of break through that is, can you hear me? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And I wait for a type of response if they yeah. just like, keep going about their whatever mm-hmm. that's obviously a no but even if they say like yeah mm-hmm. that's not a that's not a yes either like can you can you that's come back? a practice response exactly to yeah 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 but i'll say something like that when i'm feeling that disconnect of can you hear my voice mm-hmm. and if they just kind of stay glazed over mm-hmm. and do that that's a no like yeah <laughs> so let's spend some more time mm-hmm. what am i saying what did yeah. i just say yeah like I'm back. I'll use the question, how far away do I feel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But I still really do like to stay back there mm-hmm. for myself. Mm-hmm. Only in emergency situations, break instead of glass, like, or, you know, <laughs> or uh, break in case of emergency, mm-hmm. will I come all the way back yeah. um, in the middle of a session? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's just such an interesting feeling of like, the depth that you're working at. And I, I wonder like how much conscious awareness of that um, we have as we're in the EMDR world. You know, Bridger, you and I were just in a consultation group with a bunch of our therapists. And I was thinking about that a lot of that feeling of, um, you know, when you're doing EMDR and it feels very cognitive and feels like we're just sort of rationalizing and analyzing together Versus those sessions where it feels like we are in it together and there's a kind of um, quality of the air in the room and like gets mm-hmm. thicker and um, quieter, but also louder internally <laughs> somehow. Like, I, you know, it's like all these vague ways of trying to describe something that's such a sensation. Um, but to me, it, it has to do with like how the bodies are syncing up and joining each other in that space of the client's subconscious like we can do EMDR with purely conscious material, what is already known, mm-hmm. or you can get into the space where you're deep into the client's subconscious material and they're in a space that is that feels all new to them and it's such a different world. Yeah. 
to be able to look at that. And you guys talked about this in like the body and mind training mm-hmm. of the the time moving linearly, yeah. but also with the depth, depth. Yeah. and being able to explore. There's not one way to do it. In fact, there's benefits and intention in each way mm-hmm. that we may go a first pass of a target or series of targets in a pretty linear level, Mm -hmm. whether it's just talking or we're adding in bilateral to say like, what if we get some of this cognitive material out there and we get to have this Mm -hmm. validation and a relational dynamic and it's a little bit softer and safer. And then we start to find what if we do dip in deeper Mm -hmm. and can our systems tolerate that? Like what's the window that we can, what's our threshold before some of those strategies kick in? I, I really love the idea of collaborative experience in that because mm-hmm. to talk about it this is going back melissa to our conversation with with some of our our clinicians that you can talk about it all you want but only when you experience it can you even really know yeah, what know, i'm talking about mm-hmm. like it's the difference between to me just as an analogy like a airplane pilot or an astronaut right like when we go into the air you're <laughs> aware of, space yeah you're aware of different <laughs> things than i than my yes. body is yes and they're two different things. But if a pilot were talking to a pilot, yeah, I know what turbulence mm-hmm. feels like. I know what this feels like. Mm-hmm. But if an astronaut was there, it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> when you're still in Earth's gravity, <laughs> that's true. Like, but there's a changes. whole other yes. depth out there yeah. that you just can't really describe. Okay, yeah. metaphor. Mm-hmm. And like very practically, if, if this whole idea of like time moving in two directions feels a little out there, <laughs> I think... Uh, a simple way of even describing this to clients is the normal way that time flows is linear. And the question that helps us move in that way is what's next or what happened next. But when we're working in depth oriented time, the question is more like, and what else or what's underneath that, um, that, that way of You're moving. You're still paused from mm-hmm. a forward Mm-hmm. It's it's a uh, an unfolding of layers. If you're familiar with fractal geometry, that's a cool way of thinking about it. We won't spend time there. If you're not, <laughs> go look it up. It's cool. Um, but it's it's knowing that there's always a next layer underneath, and you can continue to unfold a moment uh, forever if you wanted to. Which I highly recommend trying it sometime because it's cool. But um, I think that that depth way of working with EMDR takes us into that zone. I think one of the biggest flaws of this phase is our anticipation of that next linear step Mm -hmm. as a therapist. We -hmm. know what we're trying to get to next and the sud scale kind of sets that up for you. And she says something crazy in here. We have to talk about this. And I realize that we're running out of time. Let's not not try and get through desensitization. Um, Don't. Okay. Let's be where we are. We have to end here soon, so let's... Depth of time. Depth of time. Nice, Jen. It's infinite. Nice. What is under this? Okay, but seriously, I I can't remember which page this is on. I should have... I sort of like had a brain glitch moment, but there's this spot where she says um, she's talking about the sud and the idea that with every set, the sud should go down one point. It's right here. It's on the top of page 141. Did you read that? Oh, yeah. What did you think or feel? Yeah. Does that make sense, Jen? I no, <laughs> and yes, what you're, the words you're saying make sense, but I do not agree with. Yes. It. Um, 
It, uh, yeah, so it's at the top of 141, and the idea that she is proposing is that every set we're looking for visual or nonverbal indicators that the said rating has gone down by one point. And then there's this caveat that she says sometimes it will actually go up one point, but we're letting the, the set go on long enough to achieve one full point of change on the said scale with each set. I've never heard I this have never before. Heard that either. It yeah. was fascinating to me and felt a little bit uh, impossible. I, what did you think? I felt the edges of theory versus practice okay. um, from <laughs> one of the most brilliant moments in film for me in 2023 was in Oppenheimer when mm -hmm. the okay. physicists were talking to the engineers and there are some amazing moments of depth talking about mm -hmm. time unfolding mm -hmm. circularly. But they said it works in theory, but you're the engineer. You're supposed to go do it and try it out. I thought that this is a physicist talking mm. to engineers mm -hmm. where it's like, yeah, I think that's conceptually consistent. Mm -hmm. I also think that it's strange to talk about any expectations mm -hmm. <laughs> going into this because once the reactions start happening, distress as an indicator becomes an unreliable narrator. Well, and what in the world, like how, how do you visually determine in that's, your own body Across bodies. Across bodies. Like like the level of, you know, to use a somatics term, intracorporeal sensitivity yeah. that that a body would have to have to measure that is just bizarre to me. And it's not real. Like there's not a, a scale within our viscera that says, here's the no. level of activation I'm at. No. Like so, oh, it went down a point. That yeah. it's actually communicating an integrated movement. Right. It's a mind that's trying to interpret Right. Something. So I, th I think it's just so sensitive to the agenda of the moment mm -hmm. that when I say I want it to go down a point or I hold that intention mm -hmm. and I'm then driving the force of the session towards it, that's where I start to yeah. have problems with the physicist. Yeah. The, the, theorist. the only bit of it that I felt like, okay, I can, I can conceptually and practically feel like I'm on board with that is the idea that the number of sets is irrelevant. What is more relevant is tracking the shift and yes. change of the yeah. client's body. That I can jam with all day long. And also... I have to astracize that a bit because change in this language is, is positively biased. That Okay. She says up or down. Well, she does say that change down. is that the equivalent of change, at least one sud, should be evident in the client's responses after each set. That change is talking about towards resolution to me as I read it. Well, I think that is what she means as well. Even, in, you know, the idea that if we're going up, it is still so that we can go down. Yeah. 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 So that's where I think conceptually I agree, but that's where I start to fuss because I don't think change, I don't think it's on me to talk about positivity or even adaptive. And I know that I'm differing from Francine here. We are. That's a divergence for us is that we don't even like the phrase maladaptive. Even if it gets worse, I still think it's meaningful because it's uncovering distressing material that was not previously conscious to the client. Mm -hmm. And it may still not be as we're in there, mm -hmm. but I didn't mean if that takes us too far into a okay. tangent. But I, I think for me, SUD it shouldn't be objectified as a timeline to get to zero. 
It mm-hmm. is a subjective unit. Yeah, I think all. it should be. I know, <laughs> but it's weird the way we treat it. Like, uh-huh. mm-hmm. I think it should be something that we look at as a barometer for activation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. start to appreciate or respect that if a sud goes up, that's not bad at all. No. It's new material coming up, a mm-hmm. previously unknown depth when they touch the edge of the uh, of the dimension they're in currently. Mm-hmm. the distress will go up. That's a good thing. Like mm-hmm. we should train our therapists to be more aware and to be able to navigate interdimensionally. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean that like gets to a conversation that we certainly don't have time for, which is that fundamentally around here, we don't see our job as removing the distress of our clients. Right. We see our work as helping our clients tell more truth. Yeah. Integrate. Yes. Which may actually create more distress. You might feel more pain. Yeah. And, uh, Many of us struggle with that idea that that's our job is to help people tell more truth regardless of what feelings come with it because uh, we're struggling with it in our own world. <laughs> yeah. like, can we do that for ourselves? Yeah. What's your feeling, Jen, about that? Well, my mind wants to like give her the benefit of the doubt and extract and interpret it in a way that has like something. Like congruence? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think, Melissa, I was thinking similar to the line of thought of like, there is utility in hearing this of we're actually tracking change, mm-hmm. not necessarily just reduction, but we're tra- tracking some shift, shift mm-hmm. not this is 23 sets mm-hmm. and then check in yeah. because that has no purpose, no utility, like making your sets about following the client and mm-hmm. kind of what they're processing. Um, yeah, I think that that to me is the greatest thing we can take away from that because mm-hmm. it isn't accurate that we can detect one point of shift in one direction or another. Right. Like right. that's very mm-hmm. arbitrary. Mm-hmm. But to say we're tracking change and we're not disrupting the processing until we're noticing some kind of indication of shift or movement right. somewhere. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I, I mean, I talked about this on the last episode, but for me, I do use percentages to represent portions of my own congruence like just in my own mind like if i am 49 percent certain about something likely no behavior is going to come from it Mm -hmm. but the moment i get to 50 now i start to feel like Mm -hmm. i can embrace the diversity of my own self and Mm -hmm. be in motion so i I do get the idea of using a cognitive process to approximate internal congruence or alignment or coherence but I don't think that that has any absolute value. Right. No. That is. That's more yeah. about your internal communication with yourself about a felt yeah. sense that you're having. Yeah. I'm having a little bit more of this than that. Right. And therefore I have energy to do different. Well, and maybe her intention in the one point is that we're also not pushing, leaving them in their processing, like pushing yeah. major shifts mm-hmm. and swings without mm-hmm. a point to integrate of like, yeah. what does that mm-hmm. mean to you and check that we're noticing? That. We're kind of just tracking increments of change, yeah. not major shifts. Yeah. That makes sense. Well, so we should have another discussion about desensitization. Well, yeah, we didn't sure. even technically get to nope. the subheading. I was going to say we got through the introduction on desensitization, <laughs> which was full of stuff. So good job, guys. Okay. So before we go, we have exciting things to talk about. Do you guys want to go to Washington with me? I actually was I already planning on really? going. Oh, yeah. Okay. Cool. There's this thing, um, the <laughs> the Imdria plateau. Plateau. No, what no. is it? Imdria summit. That's what it is. Yeah, we're gonna go. We're gonna go. So here's the deal. There is one main reason why you all need to come to Seattle. 
<laughs> because if you come, number one, we will probably go have a drink with you. But number two, maybe even more importantly, you will leave with a tote bag that has our logo on it. Hell to the, yeah. <laughs> And a so sticker. Get your ticket now. And a business card. <laughs> and we, we have been brainstorming ideas about how to make this a, a fun experience. My latest suggestion is googly eyes. So that may or may not happen. And a live podcast recording. And a live yep, podcast recording. Everyone wants to be interviewed and put on the podcast. Yeah, we're, yeah. I mean, it's a possibility. It's not going to be scary. The prompt is going to be very gentle. What does being an EMDR therapist actually mean to you? Yeah. That's a great prompt. I, I didn't know so. that it came to that. So I between that and googly eyes. Just, like <laughs> no, it was actually in the conclusion of that meeting. I wrote it down in my journal. I can show you. I don't share everything with you, Jen. <laughs> I have lots of thoughts. There are lots of parts of me, okay? The, the point is, everybody, we're going to be at the summit, and we want you to come say hi. We're going to be at the booth, and uh, we're going to... Do, do we know. have an RSVP link for our meetup? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. There will so, be... Yeah, we're going to come out with a link where you can RSVP. And to a separate meetup. Yeah, where we go get a drink together and kind of hang out. We might out, even have a chat. pizza party at our Airbnb. We'll we see. haven't decided. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Possibilities I'm are, not committing us to anything. Possibilities <laughs> are pretty endless right now. It obviously depends on how many of us converge on, you know, Bellevue, Washington. One said place, so. yeah. Uh-huh. But it's going to be fun. Yeah. So You guys should come. Come hang out with us. The other thing that we wanted to mention is uh, we haven't talked about this on the podcast for a very long time. But we still, in fact, do retreats here. Very much so. <laughs> so if you want to come and hang out with us or send your clients for three to five days, um, we're still running therapeutic retreats. We do EMDR. We do somatics. We have somatic practitioners, body workers, and lots of different EMDR therapists that can work with you. Um, and if you're interested in learning how to do those, Jen, you've got a group where you teach people how to run healing intensives and retreats. Yes. Mm-hmm. Six months for every four weeks we meet for 90 minutes over the span of six months. And I have a group starting in April and then there's another one like four or five months after that. Cool. So, And yeah. in that group you teach people exactly what to do every step of the way? Every or? step of protocol. Like a, basically a script that you just A script create. for every moment of every, every day of the retreat? Yeah. Wait a second. No, don't say that because there's going to be people that actually want that. Yes. I know. It's I'm not real. We ha- we're joking. <laughs> so <laughs> what it really is is more of a um, there is a PowerPoint presentation that we kind of work through <laughs> but we cover the clinical conceptualization around intensive work and retreats as well as some of the practical pieces of putting that together. And then a lot of collaboration. So other clinicians that are already doing it or haven't yet but are interested in kind of brainstorming and sharing their ideas. So we learn a lot as a group together. And then I share what Beyond has learned over the years of offering them. Because mm-hmm. we've been doing it for many years. Now. It has been a lot. It's like, it's like one of a lot the of iterations of it too. So many iterations. Yeah. And I think that was the second thing that we started to do post-podcast. Yep. That Pretty sick. I know. We've that was our second minute. project. Great to be back yes. with everybody. Mm-hmm. See y'all in Washington. And then on the podcast again in two weeks. Yeah, because we'll also... <laughs> okay. That was a nice end, though. Thank you. I was trying. I was trying again. Say, say say again. See you all in Washington. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information 
on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes, leave us a review, and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.